Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Today's episode is a little bit different to the norm. I'm catching up with good friend of mine and fellow GP, Dr. A.M. Panja. You'll recognize him from previous episodes where we discussed heart and brain health. And he has been practicing medicine for 22 years since qualifying from Imperial College London, my old university. He also co-founded and teaches on the RCGP accredited course, Prescribing Lifestyle Medicine, also known as PLM. He's writing a book that I cannot wait to read. It's due for publication in January, 2023. And he mentioned some things about symptom webs. It will become clear when the book comes out. Plus he is host of a brilliant podcast called Saving Lives in Slow Motion. And this is what this whole episode is really based around. I, I text him, I said, look, I love the podcast. I'd love to promote it on mine. Um, and this is a podcast where Ian takes 15 minutes of your time to give his perspective on health and well-being, which is quietly mind expanding, as he puts it, informal, but professional and very, very listenable. It's so good. In fact, it's become one of my favorites. And I've embedded one of my favorite episodes that you're about to listen to right here. And this is going to be before me and A.N. chat on my podcast. This podcast is from his Saving Lives in Slow Motion backlog. It's on medical myths and it runs for about 12 minutes. I'm going to leave it there. I really hope you enjoy it and I'll see you in about 12, 13 minutes. Hello, hello, and welcome to Saving Lives in Slow Motion. Now, today, I'm going to be talking about medical myths. Yeah, this is a bit of a fun episode, really, because um, medical myths are all around us. How many times have you heard remedies that your 
relatives or friends or you know people that just randomly offer medical advice come up with and you think wait a second where does that come from and is there any truth to it so I thought it might be fun to look at a few of those and there are just so many and most of us you know experience this from early early life really there's there are lots of myths that creep in you know the commonest apocryphal one is an apple a day keeps the doctor away but you know there are just so many um carrots being good for your eyesight cold water giving you stomach cramps uh, breakfast is the most important meal of the day uh, you know it goes on and on and on and the, the time it really sort of hit me was about 15 years ago when I had a really bad uh, sty on my upper eyelid and it was it was awful it was so big and, and very visible um, quite painful as well and I'd just been doing the usual hot compresses for it but what was interesting was that almost everyone who walked into my room that day gave me some advice on what to do with it including putting a tea bag on it rubbing apple cider vinegar on it putting garlic on it or even an ice cube it was astonishing but every single one had something different to offer me it was really sweet actually because they obviously cared and I must hasten to add I didn't actually do any of the things that were on offer it also got me thinking about the fact that a lot of people swear by their one thing for everything. So most of us know someone like this where their life is dominated by that thing, whether it's Himalayan salt or turmeric or forest bathing or ice cold showers. And, you know, they become really quite evangelical about that particular thing it filters into every aspect of their life there's a lot more to medical myths than you know home remedies and, and things like that and if you're interested one of the show links is um about a program i made in 2013 with ellie cannon and pixie mckenna uh, called health freaks where people did exactly that they brought in their home remedies and then we sort of gave them a verdict as to whether we thought there was any validity to it quite interesting so you can have a look at the trailer for that but other medical myths include um things that are a bit more nuanced so for example proverbs or dictums you know like we only use 10% of our brains is that true or crossing your legs cuts off your circulation or that stress um, makes your hair go gray and is it right to feed a cold and starve a fever and I guess for me as a doctor you know most of you that know my work know that I'm extremely curious and I always want to get to the why of the why the root of the root and it frustrated me when I was a junior doctor that I didn't know the answers to these things. Even though a lot of them are just folklore, it's nice to know whether there's any truth to them. So I'm going to cover a few of them um, and go through the reasoning behind whether they're true or not uh, with a bit of the science and then also post some links to ones that are interesting because we, you know, this is a fascinating area and I know people love this kind of stuff. And also, is there anything useful that we can extract from these myths um, that might help us feel better or live healthier lives? So let's start with the 10% brain one. You know, is it a myth that we only use 10% of our brains? Short answer is yes, it's a myth. 
So the next question is, if it's a myth, where does it come from? And many people say it's from the work of William James, who was a psychologist in the early 1900s. And he did a lot of work on fatigue and the fact that people often don't feel like they're firing on all cylinders when it comes to mind and body. But, you know, like any good rumour, that seems to have been taken as gospel and it's just been perpetuated through the years by various people, including Albert Einstein, as a sign that we don't fulfil our potential. Um, Actually, when you look at functional MRIs and you look at um, PET scans of the brain, most of us use most of our brains most of the time. And of course, remember that the brain is neuroplastic, so you can learn new things into old age. So that's all good news. Okay, so what about crossing your legs? Is it really bad for you? Does it cut off your circulation? In fact, I often tell patients not to cross their legs when they take their blood pressure because crossing your legs temporarily spikes your blood pressure. Well, there's a few things about leg crossing um, which may not be so good for our health. Um, It's one of those things, isn't it? No one does it until a certain age and it's a very sort of adult thing to do, um, you know, sitting quietly somewhere politely people often cross their legs you know whether it's on a tube train or in a meeting or wherever so it certainly wouldn't be a good idea to cross your legs all the time because a it does cause a spike in blood pressure and b it's probably not good for your posture it can cause your pelvis to rotate or tilt and that can sometimes lead to lower back pain and the like In physical terms, um, going back to the actual veins in the leg, of course, it's not good to cross your legs and leave them in that position for a long time because the blood's not going to be able to move and circulate very well. So if you're, say, on an aeroplane or something for a long flight, I would definitely recommend that you don't cross your legs during that just because you want to kind of keep the uh, blood moving. Right, so what's next? Going grey, stress making you go grey. It's funny, isn't it? Those those kind of myths um, come into common parlance. Um, I, re- I remember an old GP colleague telling me, oh, why give yourself an ulcer? You know, why go grey early? Meaning, you know, why give yourself stress by, you know, taking on extra work or whatever? Now, this is a really interesting one because, again, you would think that most doctors would know why... Uh, we go grey. What's the sort of mechanism behind going grey? We know it happens in older age, but, you know, can stress trigger it? This is an interesting one. So the actual mechanism, you know, in terms of chemicals as to why we go grey is because of a build-up of something called hydrogen peroxide in our hair particles. And that happens naturally as part of the ageing process, but it also happens if you have a lot of what we call oxidative stress going on in your cells and that is to do with inflammation and you know if you've got another condition for example and potentially if you are very stressed so there is some truth I think to that it's not the kind of thing that you'll find studies on you know does stress cause grey hair but it's something that can be explained chemically um, in terms of a process so the more hydrogen peroxide you've got bounding around the less melanocytes you know that the actual sort of colored pigment in your hair you have of course there are you know genetic reasons as well and I've got friends who you know one side of their family go gray very early so that's also a big factor 
Okay, so feed a cold and starve a fever. How many times have we heard that one? Where does it even come from? Well, apparently it was, you know, a bit like modern day press or PR. Um, it was first coined by someone called John Withels, who was a lexicographer. He, he wrote the dictionary um, back in 1574 and wrote, fasting is a great remedy of fever. As far as I know, he didn't have any scientific background. And you know what? The jury's out on this one. I'm going to let you decide for yourself because from um, you know, animal studies, there is some evidence that actually starving a fever helps, particularly in flu-like illnesses. But another school of thought says that you should feed both um, a cold and a fever. Your immune system effectively needs boosting, and one of the theories is that the fasting state actually improves your immune response. But there is also a small amount of evidence that chicken soup actually has a beneficial effect on mucus. There's lots of theories around this, one of which is that chicken soup is rich in something called carnosine, which is a natural type of antioxidant, and that seems to have more of an effect. You know, chicken soup seems to have more of an effect than any other uh, liquid food in helping mucus to flow and kind of helping uh, the body kind of rid itself of the cold virus. How amazing is that? So in summary, I'm going to leave you the links on those and you can decide what to do. It seems like the jury's out. Some people say feed everything. Others say, hey, you know, fasting when you have a fever might help. Ultimately, what's my view? I reckon just go by how you feel and be guided by your appetite. Just while we're on the subject of things like colds, um, another adage is that kids get colds. Um, and that's very much true, and there's an obvious reason for that, and that's because their immune system is immature compared to that of an adult, and they have lower levels generally of something called IgA, or immunoglobulin A, which means that the linings of their nose and their lungs, you know, where they secrete mucus from, that response is not as efficient as it is in an adult, and so often the mucus hangs around a bit longer, and as such, you have the adage that kids get colds. Okay, so what else? There's just so many that we could talk about. Are eggs bad for your cholesterol? Are nuts junk food? Are nightcaps any good for sleep? Is chocolate an aphrodisiac? Does garlic improve libido? Um, oh God, I just, you know, could go on forever with this one. Um, do cucumbers help puffy eyes? Does green tea help weight loss? Uh, what do I pick? Okay, so very quickly, nightcaps generally aren't good for sleep because um, they may help you get off to sleep, but as you metabolise the alcohol throughout your sleep, it will get to that level in your blood where it's a stimulant and tend to wake you up or disrupt sleep. So that is a myth. With libido and garlic, there was a small study just in men. It was 49 of them. You can see this in the show notes. And they were given um, a compound with garlic extract, ginseng and velvet antler and it looked as though that improved their erectile function. I mean firstly the study was only in men and there were other factors apart from the garlic so who knows but garlic you know does improve blood flow there's some studies on that so and and with all these things um, you know with all these myths occasionally there's sort of there's some truth to them but you it's really hard to kind of say yes it's true or no it's not. So I guess it'd be nice to come full circle and look at the one about an apple a day. Where does that 
even come from. Apparently, it comes from the late 19th century and originally went something like this. Eat an apple on going to bed and you'll keep the doctor from earning his bread. So, actually, there is some evidence that apple eaters are less likely to see a doctor and that's in the modern world and I've linked the study there on the show notes. So, there is some truth to that. And apples, if you can eat them and you're not allergic to them just contain so much good stuff you know they contain fiber vitamin c lots of flavonoids yeah and actually improve the quality of your gut flora the bugs in your gut which of course is the food for your immune system so they're a great thing to incorporate if you're not an apple eater it's a great thing to just have as a snack i wasn't for many years um myself i preferred biscuits and things but um now it's very much a part of my daily routine of course a cynic could argue that apple eaters just hate doctors (laughs) i really hope you agree it's pretty darn good so give him a follow and check out his backlog on behavior change well-being and tons more now me and ian are about to catch up recently ian unfortunately suffered the tragedy of losing his father quite unexpectedly from cancer so we talk about how he's dealing with the grieving process and bereavement in general as well as his work on upskilling lifestyle medicine practitioners of the future plus some mutual love for Nitin Sawney and Telvin Singh whose music I will link to in the show notes this might be upsetting for some people who are undergoing bereavement but I think it's really important to have these pragmatic discussions um, and, uh, and and talk about it openly which I really commend Aim for doing he's going through uh, grief the grief process at the moment um, so that's what you're about to hear um, but there is uh, uh, some humor in this too we've known each other for years yeah yeah and yeah. and you know we text all the time we don't always record everything that we say in a podcast but uh, it's nice to do this every now and then just to check in and also Uh, I just love sharing uh, your knowledge with as many people as possible because you've definitely inspired me in a massive way, probably more than you you know. And you know, I know you're a very humble person, so you this is probably cringing. You're probably cringing as you hear this, but um, it's really um, it's really important for me to remind you of just how impactful you've been in my career um, and uh, how our conversations are as well, because that really does shape the kind of content that I put out there. And and I love your projects and everything else. So. Um, before we get into it, let's, uh, no, no, of course, mate. Um, talk to me about your year. Cause you, you've had a tough year. Um, you've been really authentic on social media. You've, you've really sort of, uh, been pretty transparent with everything you've gone through. So for, for those who don't know, t- tell us about what's been going on. Yeah. Um, I see it has been a difficult year. And I think the last time we, you and I could have met up was, was at Knitting Sawney, wasn't it? Which I think you went with your crew and I, I was with mine. Like I, we didn't sort of meet up because it's such, it's an amazing night, wasn't it? But, um, mm, and, um, amazing. and the reason he pops into my head is that, um, my dad passed away in the summer of this year after a kind of, it was really odd, actually. He, he went in for a knee replacement that he'd been putting off for about 10 years and finally thought, you know what, I'm going to go and get it done. And then, had it done and just wasn't recovering after he came out of hospital and then we didn't know what was going on he was really confused losing weight and it turned out in the end that he had a sort of a something called a t-cell lymphoma this sort of cancer of the lymphatic system that hadn't been diagnosed because they're really difficult to diagnose it wasn't like it was anyone's fault and then died about you know six weeks later and um 
the reason this insomnia pops into my mind is when we were you know thinking about the aftermath and the funeral I was trying to pick some music so the funeral wasn't a religious one particularly there were sort of elements of you know spirituality in there but I picked a song called Bengali Song by Nitin Sawney, which really resonates with me. It's off one of his very early albums called, I forget the name now, how embarrassing, I think it's called Disciples, something about the priest. Anyway, Displacing the Priest, I think it's called. But, but um, And th- th- that was an album before I even knew about him, but it really sort of gets me there, you know, because it sums up, um, for me, a lot of my dad's kind of early life. And so that kind of loss you know that you you hear about people passing away all the time and we see it in our work don't we but until it Mm. sort of happens to you it's definitely the sort of the the closest relative I've lost and the sense of loss is just is is enormous it's nothing really prepares you for it and what I would say for anyone who who has lost a parent it's almost like you know losing your parents is like the very last bit of growing up and becoming a a proper adult because you sort of it's a really odd thing and, and no one you know one of my very close friends has just lost his dad a few days ago and he's going through what I did and it's a it's a really difficult time um also you know I, I my, my parents lost their parents years ago and I, I never really totally understood why it was that my mum would still to this day get sad about her parents dying I'm mm. like mum that was like 35 years ago you know but the Mm. point is that loss that sort of sense of grief never never really leaves you 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 live with it and it stays with you and you know as you what you were saying about social media I what I what I try and do on my podcast is talk about really sort of what makes us human it's called saving lives in slow motion and what, what does that even mean well it's kind of what I think GPs should be doing or do in our in our working life and it covers areas that relate to everyone, but are not kind of strictly medical. So grief is a very common one. I see lots of people who are grief stricken and, you know, you don't just get over grief. That's that's the thing. If you've never mm. been grief stricken, you don't really understand that it's something that's permanent. It's it's not sort of, oh, you're OK now, you know, oh, yeah, your dad died, but you're all right now. Surely, surely everything's back. To, you know, and the problem is the world just carries on and um doesn't wait for you do you know what I mean so it has been Mm. tough I mean I've had to move my mum up near me which is great because I see her sort of nearly every day um but that that is not a small feat you know she's moved out of a house that she's sort of lived in for the last 38 years probably hasn't stayed Mm. a night alone for the last 38 years Do you know what I mean and that's a Mm. big adjustment so so lots of adjustments lots of change but um yeah you know learning to kind of adapt to it like we have to as 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 all you know creatures do to their sort of environment first of all so sorry um we've talked about it before Mm. um but uh when you told me it kind of came out that completely the blue as, as i'm sure it did for you as well and mm. this is still very fresh for you so i imagine you, you're still going through a lot of that process uh yourself um and like you just eloquently said there as well you never really get over it you're always going to have some element of grief or bereavement um but in terms of how you are coping considering you are someone who's super experienced with breaking bad news as well as dealing with patients who are going through similar scenarios. Um, have you found that some of the coping strategies that you've been talking to to other people have been 
easier to put in place yourself or is this something that you know you just can't you, we, we have sort of the instruction manual but putting to into practice those things that we tell other people is is actually uh near impossible or, or a lot harder than we thought yeah i i, t- I totally agree with that you know it's it's um and, and i think the, the reason why grief and bereavement is so unique i, I now realize is that there is just nothing else like it it's on a totally separate level to anything else you know and I say in, in in my pod episode about it you know I, people who lose a child for example I, I have no idea how they cope you know I mean I really don't and, and I you know have lost an admiration for anyone who can get you know get get on with their life after that but 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 you're quite right I mean a lot of our learning as doctors is through patients isn't it and what they sort of go through and what they tell you and one of the things that really struck me struck me after the after my dad's death is how many people you suddenly have these intense relationships with so we had to get a celebrant to take the funeral so they have a really special set of skills you know they rock up at your house they don't know you from adam and suddenly within two hours they've got a really good understanding of what your dad was like, what your mum's needs are and what the family dynamic is, you know. And so she she was amazing. And she sort of came in and it was me, my brother and my mum sat around and she was like, she was looking at my mum. She goes, yeah, your boys are definitely in charge, aren't they? You know, and she said, because she could sort of spot that, you know, the way that the three of us sort of, you know, kind of roll, if you like. And um, and that was amazing. And then suddenly you're, you're in contact with a funeral director and they, again, they have to have a really special set of skills. And I'm not demeaning any 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 anyone's sort of suffering but you know they do that for their job every day and but you know like we do as doctors but you you know they were just super professional and and I think I think as doctors we're sort of hyper aware of how people communicate and you know whether they're just ticking yeah. boxes and there was none of that they were really really compassionate and and the, these are things that are essential services you know like healthcare they are because all of us die and all of us you know if you can actually nowadays not everyone does get a funeral because people often can't afford it which is another issue in itself socially but but um Mm. and 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 the word essential kept sort of cropping up in my head in that you know essentialism you know I suddenly started to think do you know what time's like the my only commodity that really matters you know you suddenly realize the value of it when Mm. someone passes away and so yeah it's a blur and your 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 head is a bit of a a mess i think the first the first sort of few you know days weeks um, i'm sure this will relate to anyone who's had a loss of of that grief process you up until the funeral i felt that dad was sort of still with us you know even though he passed away he was very much there and then as soon as that's over you get this weird feeling it's a it's a little bit like the feeling that you get after you get married or a big sort of celebration but with a totally different energy and you just feel you don't know how to think it's just it's very empty um and so it, it, yeah i'm still sort of you know I'm, I, I don't think you ever get back to how you were before it happened you know which is a, another coming to terms mm. with thing and I'm, st- I'm i'm now much sort of more selective about things uh, so I, I don't rush to sort of email people back necessarily because i think 
that can wait. It's not important. It's not essentialist. Do you know what I mean? And so um, mm. it, yeah, it, it yeah. makes me, yeah. I don't want to sort of come across as, oh, well, he just sounds like he's just become more selfish. Maybe, maybe if that's the way you want to put it. But um, you've got to just, you've got to kind of look after yourself and kind of really think about what's important in your life. And if nothing else, that it does that in spades because you're never going to bring that person back. You've just got to, you know, acknowledge that it's just a, it's a terrible loss so um you know and I, I'm lucky I, I got on well with my dad you know I know people often don't have that relationship and it's much harder for them because they think oh I wish we'd made up or I wish we'd sort of said certain things and I got to do all that so you know um yeah I'm, I'm blessed in that sense that's a really interesting perspective actually um you know considering some people have broken relationships and when they pass away there is never the uh, ability to you know make, make reparations and make amends um so actually having that close relationship is something you cherish you know that i think that speaks to like the way you're processing things as well and the um the other thing that i uh, wanted to pick up on was um how certain people have different ways in which they process grief so i've got a, a colleague of mine who's uh, mother passed away two years ago and to this day you know we'll be chatting and then she'll break into um in, into into a crying session which is totally fine from my perspective i mean like you know obviously we, we deal with this all the time um but for that person they often feel quite guilty that or embarrassed that they still are having this you know deep bereavement reaction considering it's been two years and to your point that you said earlier sometimes it could be decades and you'll still have that visceral reaction to loss because it is part of that human experience and you know I, i'm i'm really lucky in that i still have both my parents and the closest relatives i've had that have passed away to me uh have been my grandparents um but that happened quite a few years ago um and D despite that and despite seeing so many people it's really hard to like really truly understand how you might be feeling in this moment do you know what i mean it's 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 a difficult one whenever i talk uh about grief to people uh, for example i spoke to mo galda um on the podcast a few weeks back and uh we were talking about his son who unfortunately passed away from a routine operation it was an appendicectomy that went wrong uh, he was only 19, I believe, at the time. And so he had to process that whilst having depression himself. Um, so, you know, having having a more open conversation about grief and bereavement in general is something that we don't tend to do very well as British people, I, I, if I'm honest. Like in, in different cultures, they, they have more of an appreciation for it. So I'm, I'm glad we're having these kind of conversations. But I always, uh, on a personal level, I always struggle to really connect with how that might be feeling uh how you might be feeling i can only just try my best yeah I, and that's there's you know i i totally understand that because i i would have been exactly the same um in that it is one of those things that you nothing prepares you for it, it it's, it's it's just unique honestly and I'm, I'm not saying i've lived you know i'm quite i've left quite a sheltered life in some ways but i'm kind of long enough in the tooth to have and, and also seen so much in my career to kind of have quite a good understanding of other processes but nothing is like this it is like being hit by a train and um, not that I've been hit by a train I you know I'm just using you know metaphorical language but but um but you're right it's sort of it's like a sort of 
visceral pain. I, I'll, I'll give you a really detailed sort of example of what it is. So sometimes what happens with, with grief, something will sort of trigger a thought about the person that you've lost. And I don't know whether this is what happened with your friend, but you might, you know, for example, walk into a shop and then see a chair that's exactly like her mum's chair or something. And that just triggers a bunch of memories and makes you feel, you know, that it's that sort of thing. Or, or what would happen for me, you know, a few weeks after my dad passed away, I'd wake up in the mornings and it would suddenly hit me that, oh God, I've just realised he's, yeah, dad died, I know that. You know, your logical brain knows that happened. And then you just feel terribly, uncontrollably sad, just, you know, with this almost sort of, yeah, visceral pain that just, and, and then it sort of passes mm. and then, the rest of the day is not so bad but then but then it just it goes in waves you know and it's a real it is a real sort of clear you know I, I kind of can't stand cliches but my brain is so sort of that way wired in terms of the words I use and all that sort of I should have gone into PR or comms or something but but it is literally like you know it is waves and the problem with waves is they sort of crash eventually don't they you know it, a real wave would, mm. and that's exactly what it's like um it, it you know you just sort of think no, I'm, I'm doing all right actually i'm doing okay and then suddenly it's like boom but and, and there's not much else that's like yeah. that it's sort of i think the closest thing that if you've not been through it that i i'm trying to i've been trying to think you know what else have i had that's that's been like that you know and it'll be something along the lines that which is totally nowhere near as serious of failing exams again and again or something at medical go oh, i'm never going to get through this and then you sort of you know, but that's that's a different sort of loss and a different sort of you know, and it's it's not even on a remotely on a level to losing someone. But um, and now I realise how stupid that was. You know, it just puts everything else into perspective. You know, another cliched sentence, but you know, it really it really does. Yeah, the, the way you just described um, the visceral nature of pain and happening. You know, it's in our vernacular. It's how we describe things, and it's our brain processing. Um, loss in a very physical manner. And it reminds me of, uh, you know, what myself and Deepak Ravindran were talking about a few weeks ago, actually about pain, who I must connect you with, actually. I think you mm. both really get on. Um, and uh, the, the way he described um, pain and our processing to us made sense on so many levels because it it made me appreciate what chronic pain is like for so many people, but also the uh, physical manifestation of psychological pain as well. And it's, you know, something that I, I think, I, I, again, I, I've, I feel like I've, I've led quite a sheltered life up to this point because I haven't had that loss experience. Um, and every like feeling in me is like hoping I never come to that but obviously mm. it is just a part of adulthood it is part of yeah. growing up and it's something that we have to transition to and getting comfortable with um the knowledge that i'm we're going to have to experience this kind of loss at some point in our life um mm. it's you know something we need to get uh, a, a lot more used yeah. to i guess i think one of the things that's absolutely right i mean one of the things that's helped me is that um and the, the sort of upsides, if you like, of, of grief and and someone passing away, because, you know, there's a lot of there's, there's There is some there's some moments of joy as well. You know, these funny things when you're talking about, you know, you're the person you've lost or looking through old photos that there's a lot of 
humor that arises that just and suddenly you think oh gosh should I be laughing you know it feels really wrong to, you know but that happens really quickly the thing about the person you've lost is that they're sort of with you forever now you know my dad's sort of constantly with me to the point where you know I, I think a lot more about what he might be thinking or saying now that he's not around because when someone is around you take that for granted and you think oh god you know dad's ringing I bet he's gonna say yeah don't let the kids go out in the dark because it's it's been snowing or something like that you know whereas now you know he'd be sat here thinking oh god Rupi's mic's really big isn't it or, or whatever you know just <laughs> or just or like oh no he's another guy who doesn't shave like me because he'd always sort of go oh you're gonna just do you, do you never shave anymore <laughs> you know that sort of thing's quite nice you know what I mean and you can predict you know and almost you yeah. know I think I think you know I sort of think sometimes I think oh god it'd be oh, it's, it's annoying actually dad would know the answer to this but then you sort of think what would he say and then you can sort of almost answer it for yourself you know there's a there's a lot of that that goes on as well so so it's not all it is bad there's no doubt about it but it's not all terrible terrible there's there there are some some moments where you and you you have to live with it that's the that's the reality of it yeah yeah, yeah so. definitely i guess you know it's a, i mean it's the way you frame things as well and it's easy for me to say that someone who hasn't experienced loss like that but uh you know you you're you're demonstrating to us that the way in which you can get i mean have you have you had counseling or have you have you um done any of that i i i I haven't actually I sort of um I probably should because I, I recommend it to I, I sort of yeah not not officially and it's something that's on offer through funeral directors you know which I didn't know about um and and that didn't happen because the funeral directors down in Brighton and I I live in Hertfordshire so mm. you know um but what has helped is is friends who've been through the same thing have effectively helped me through it patients as well actually you know it's amazing how supportive they've been wow. because I was off for I think I was on leave anyway for two weeks and then I tagged another two weeks of sort of compassionate leave on so I wasn't in the practice for a month which is quite a long time mm. and word sort of got around but I got so many cards and messages and you know it was it was, it was really nice and the people who've um who've been through it had a, had a sort of bit of narrative you know or a bit of advice on it and that's really helped actually so um yeah I mean I, I I haven't but I should and I probably will and and you know we haven't in a way I haven't really had time to to kind of grieve properly it's gone from you know funeral to moving mum up here and sorting her out and then my brother got married recently and, oh, wow. and all, all sorts of stuff so it's not it, you know and actually I think not that there's any hope of getting any time off really at the moment but but you know when you sort of stop for a week or something I think that's when I'm gonna have to reflect and I might sort of yeah so so it's it's on my radar and my sort of ever-growing to-do list but yeah. yeah so not not officially I haven't but I've kind of yeah I kind of almost sort of cancelled myself and I've got such a great support network I've been really lucky to sort of have not needed it but um but yeah I, it's it's on my list yeah yeah definitely i mean fr from my perspective it just uh it makes me feel even more grateful to have my parents so I, you, you've met my dad you, you you've uh yeah you've yeah met a couple yeah. of times and stuff and yeah the, the next time i'll be seeing him i'll be hugging him even tightly and it's it's, yeah, it's a, a morbid yeah. sort of thing to think about for for, for me uh, at this point but at the same time i think it is inevitable and it's something that you have to you have to appreciate and you have to uh 
accept mm. um, and and uh, enjoy those present moments as much as possible because they are not um, that they're, they're, they're not forever. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so do send my regards to Daddy. Lovely, lovely man, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, very yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah. 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 And on that note, um, yeah, I can't wait to, for us to meet up uh, properly so I can give you a big hug as well, man. It's been too long. Oh, thank, oh, thank you, mate. That's really kind. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, I think it's like times are just so, so hard, aren't they? I mean, when it's, 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 it's funny because I, I think you're right. Seeing people in the flesh has been really helpful. Um, and I, I, I kind of, you know, this whole thing about, NHS GPs not seeing mm. people face to face, which is kind of false news yeah. in a way, because we never really stopped. But um but it has been it's been in, insanely busy, but but it's been really nice sort of doing more of that where you're seeing people more face to face because you can, you know, the you the, something gets lost on on a phone call and even even on a video like this mm. it's great but it's not quite you don't feel the energy of the person mm. in the room do you know what i mean yeah. and um um so yeah that's been um and in fact we're just at the moment trying to work out how to see even more face to face because we we have to still sort of clean the room down because of covid and that adds another few minutes yeah. you know um and and the building's kind of split at the moment where anyone who's on the phone is in one half and and the other half of the building is where we see people face to face and that means you're traipsing from computer to room to you know mm. so uh yeah got to think that through but um but yeah and how's your how's your work going by the way it's 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 but going well uh <laughs> I, I i wanted to talk about this actually because um uh a, about a year ago we had this conversation i remember i was walking to work and i was like i think i'm going to retrain and do my mchems and uh and go sort of full hog with um accident emergency medicine and do the uh, the em training and all that kind of stuff mm. and um and now <laughs> i'm going almost the other way where i'm like i have to take time off clinically to achieve yeah. some of the goals that I kind of set myself over the last six months. And actually the experience I had of um, going into work uh, full time, doing all the stuff during COVID, having those uh, breaking bad conversations as part of the, um, uh, the, the the family team for ITU patients and all that kind of jazz and yeah, mucking in. Yeah, mucking in during that that time really did make me reflect on what I actually want to achieve in five or 10 or 15 years time. And I think um, having conversations with people made me realize how much of a good thing I'm on to with, with doing the doctor's kitchen stuff and the food and the, you know, and, and it's, it's easy to trivialize in my head. I'm just a doctor who likes playing around with vegetables and, <laughs> and telling and telling people uh, to exercise. And that's, that's honestly how I describe myself to people who don't know what I do. Um, but uh, that aside, I think, you know, we are at a tipping point where a lot more people are interested in looking after themselves after mm. having witnessed what happened with COVID and also in the knowledge that there are things that we can do to protect ourselves and not just from another deadly pathogen that is almost inevitable over the next five to 10 years, as morbid as that sounds, but also from the things that are afflicting us uh, pre-pandemic, um, the lifestyle-related illnesses that you talk about all the time and you have a whole course uh, training uh, clinicians about and how to deal with beyond pharmaceuticals. And so I'm now at a point where I'm about to take 
a year off clinically <laughs> to focus on um, Amazing. a tech um, sort of venture of mine where I'm creating an app um, which will be a healthy living uh, behavior change app that will be available to consumers. And then we want to try and scale up. So it'll be like the headspace for healthy eating initially, but then moving into more of a sort of holistic uh, health management system, uh, you know, that's promoting nutritional medicine and an evidence-based um, approach. So, so that that's a long spiel in uh, of that like how awesome. I'm thinking about uh, non-clinical work as being sort of my work work uh, now, which is yeah, that is that is incredible. And I, I think firstly, I've got to say, you know, don't go into PR. <laughs> your summary, your summary of what you what you think you do is not uh, doesn't do justice at all. Because I think you know, I think the one thing about you that everyone I know that knows you, and I'm sure you know consume, consumes your output in the sense that you know your 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 tv work or your podcast or you know coloring medicine you know it, it, it you know you're so sort of genuine and it's so it's really obvious that you're you're not faking it you know you what you see is what you get and you love what you do and i think that's the most important thing so you're and you're you know you're right at the front forefront of this kind of i hate using words like movement but you know it is sort of you know a way of thinking and and I totally agree with you. You know, we've got to look after ourselves better. I mean, I, I'm really scared about the state of the NHS. I don't know how to navigate it myself if mm. I were a patient or if my mum got ill or something. I, re- I genuinely don't. I'm not just saying that, you know, for the, the sheer, you know, fun of it. Um, things are dire. I mean, I just, I read something today about how um, an ambulance service had to send a taxi to pick someone up with a broken hip. I mean, what? you know yeah. what is going on um so so you're, you're quite right and I think the other thing is you 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 know I'm so glad you're taking a sort of break from clinical work because when you've got ideas fizzing around in your head which which I have quite a lot of unless you make time to sort of actually do something with them you, you can't really push them across the finish line do you know what I mean yeah. it's, it's just yeah. you've got to have time to do it and I you know and I'm you know probably going to take a sabbatical early next year because I just uh, you know like you I've got nothing like that because your project sounds you know incredible but I've got I've got things that I need to get done which I I think actually if you're working full on you you can't do you know you'll just sort of either literally drop dead or Mm. or or not do any of them properly and Mm. that's that's rubbish isn't it that's no good because you know you're like me you like doing things well and properly and otherwise there's no point in doing them and so um no that sounds amazing I'd, i can't wait to see it God, yeah no d- I, i'm definitely i mean now that i know that you're doing sabbatical i'm gonna be sending you loads of stuff now and we're gonna- <laughs> <laughs> uh, all my time will be used up no, no, yeah yeah no, 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 that'd no. be a good thing no, <laughs> no, no great. definitely no, always got uh, time for that yeah absolutely no it sounds um yeah and it and, and i think otherwise you, you know you, you can't what, what you're describing is something that it will be you know pushing the kind of you know it's not healthcare in 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 the traditional sense but it's definitely a sort of a, a new modality of how we operate as human beings and how you can look after yourself better and surely that's what we're all trying to do isn't it yeah absolutely and mm. like we were saying at the start of this conversation i'm, I'm yeah. super interested in um tech as a means for scaling ideas um mm. and I, I i look through healthcare through the lens of innovation and what is available to us now and like you particularly when I'm working in a primary care environment or an emergency environment, it is mm. really frustrating trying to break down barriers. Like a, 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 an example is a, a colleague of mine 
uh, one of my best friends actually, who was at Knit and Sawney, who uh, um, is a big, big Knit and Sawney fan as well. He mm. um, he started a, uh, uh, a med tech company himself. Mm. It's B2B mm. and it's basically logistics uh, for non-clinical issues. So if you've got a, a broken bulb or a missing blood tube bottle on the ward, instead of trying to find the nurse and then trying to go to estate and then calling up the number and then wasting you know 45 minutes of your time when you're already busy, it's just a take a picture and then that goes to the relevant estates person and then the issue is solved uh, autonomously that's the you know that that's the state getting that innovation that is probably obvious to 99% of people listening to this has taken him years absolutely years and so for yeah yeah it's that face farm moment right there so uh, and he's an orthopedic surgeon with a london london, uh, london number and he had to to drop that aside to focus on this this is the sacrifice he's making and so yeah over the last year i realized you know if i'm really going to have an impact that i want to have and I, you know if i if i look back on the, the next five years in five years time what do i want to have achieved and and it's it's definitely looking like um trying to scale up the knowledge that i've accrued here and trying to make it as accessible for as many people as possible but i don't want to talk about me yeah. the whole time i want to talk a bit about you because um I, I it's very kind of you to say that i'm at the forefront of this movement you've been at the forefront of this movement way way before me so i want to talk a bit about your early career because you've you've done radio you've done the tv you've done all that kind of stuff tell us about how your career is progressing at this point now and your experience over the last five years and, and where your heads are i know you said you want to do a sabbatical but i'd love to know a bit more about what direction you're going in yeah yeah it, it's a weird one actually because i i um the, the tv stuff yeah it's 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 I, we'll have to go back almost to when i was at med school because i in a way was a bit of a reluctant medic so my parents were both you know hospital doctors and i i never really gave my career enough thought i just you know the, the problem was they were from a particular you know they're from calcutta in in india and a lot of their med school mates also sort of emigrated at the same time as them and most of their children in in my generation just did by default ended up in medicine that's sort it's sort of a stereotype narrative but quite a natural one to understand and so i just thought yeah i'll i'll, I'll end up doing medicine whatever happens because that's what all these people do having said that that's not strictly true like sinetra sarka who is one of my best friends who's whose parents again came from you know her dad and my parents were at the same med school um didn't she went into acting and i remember thinking when she was sort of 16 and on brookside i was sort of thinking whoa hang on this isn't how the script's meant to go but you know she was you know dare to sort of think a bit differently and I think when I got to med school I found the work quite dull in some ways certainly the course that I was on was quite traditional and I was on a different planet thinking why am I reading about the ligaments in my wrist when I'm a human being I should know what what they are anyway you know um and so I struggled really when I when I was at med school I wasn't very happy there and I was sort of chasing record deals and thinking oh maybe I should go into like you know writing books or do a psychology degree or an English degree or something like that because I was very sort of right hemisphere heavy and I was missing that kind of artistic side to my life that had been much more prevalent at school music and things like that and so this is not not a, a unique story at all I'm not saying I'm anything special because if you speak to most medics 
a lot of them have that sort of backstory mm. going, oh, yeah, actually, I, I used to play, you know, trumpet for I don't know, <laughs> Sting or something like that, you know, whatever. But um, but the point is, um, um, it was I was deeply sort of unhappy, I think, at, at, at that state, stage. And then until I did my GP attachment and I suddenly saw the light and thought, wait a minute, this is about people. It's not just about knowing the 20 causes of liver disease, liver cirrhosis or whatever you know yeah. and, it, and, I, and it, the medicine hangs off the person and then I thought okay well I'll give it a few more years did my hospital jobs which I hated because of the hierarchical nature of hospital medicine and mm. sort of the dismissiveness of not really thinking through something just following protocols which which I know are evidence-based but still um and then I did my GP training and, and really sort of it was like that moment in the matrix where you know neo comes out and it's like oh welcome to the real world and i suddenly thought wow this this is you know there's no one understands what we do in general practice the amount of risk and the amount of sort of you know connection we have with people and so i started there i think the tv thing the tv thing's confusing because i think even now when people sort of want to work out what i'm about you know it, the tv thing's a bit of a curse in a way because it, you can get labeled as oh he's just a sort of he's a tv doctor yeah. you know um he doesn't what can he know and what, so w whatever interest you move on to afterwards kind of s s isn't taken quite as seriously for some reason you know um because most people end up on tv because they're sort of a, a super expert so tim Spector's a good example actually he's an amazingly He's used the lens of epidemiology to become an, a world expert in several things. You know, mm. um, he's almost—he's not like us in the in the generalist sense, but he sort of is. He—he he is a generalist from a different angle, but he's become famous and he's on TV and does whatever because of his expertise. Whereas I think when I first did TV, they just wanted a bunch of GPs to go on the streets and sort of doorstep people. And I remember my my producer at the time kind of going. Now, the reason we like you is we think your explanations are really good, you know, like for blood pressure and back pain and all that stuff. And at the time I was when patient.co.uk was in its infancy, I was doing bits of work for them and sort of, you know, so comms and sort of getting messages across has always been a big bit of what what I like to do. Mm. Um, and then that sort of and once you do a bit of TV work, as you will know, you know, you get asked to do other things. And I did all sorts of things like quiz shows and you know pick up tv on breakfast news and all did that quiz shows stuff. i didn't know you did quiz shows but there was it, it was one called it was called know-it-alls with giles brandreth yeah it's uh anyway it was on bbc2 it was it was only like, like an early version of egghead or something uh, yeah it was quite good it was quite good i was again it was just fun but yeah but not really only because i i, I love new experiences and i thought oh, why not you know yeah, yeah. but the problem is when when you're I think when other doctors see that, they think, hang on, this guy, you know, I remember having an appraisal years ago in like 2005 or six, and I rocked up to the appraiser's surgery and he said to one of his colleagues, he goes, he goes, oh, this is, this is A and he's, um, he's on BBC One on, at seven o'clock on Wednesday nights, you might have seen him on Street Doctor or whatever. And, and the guy just looked at me like I'd, I don't know, done a poo on his room or something he just he just goes well you know some of us have got like real jobs you know real work to do thanks yeah nice to meet you and so he, was, he was really rude wow thought, no no i do have a real job i do i do seven sessions a week in yeah general practice as a as a partner i don't know what you think you know i, I was it was an add-on but but it's it's not a it's not something i i'm not ashamed of it but I, it's not something i sort of 
talk about so much anymore and even even things like lifestyle medicine you know the label you know i just it, it sort of attracts a lot of you know negativity from certain groups who kind of think it's all common sense but actually they haven't really understood it and if they think it's all about if it's all common sense or they think oh it's all middle class medicine they've mm. totally lost it because really what it is is personalized care but sort of working out what works it's part of lifestyle medicine is obviously public health but ultimately we don't as as, as in, in general practice we're not public health doctors we deal pe with people one-to-one -one. we do some group work obviously but um so that's that's what it is i mean and i think i think what, what I'm trying to do at the moment at this point in my career is align everything so that, you know, so prescribing lifestyle medicine is, you know, the course. Um, I'm writing a book at the moment, which is very linked to the course. It's a, it's really, um, that's a long story because it's not, it wasn't originally the book I wanted to write, but, but, you know, it's a book that's definitely sort of in me and I'm, I'm really passionate about it. That's why I'm taking a sabbatical by the way, because I need some time to write the book. Amazing. And, 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 you know, and my clinical work is, is the thing that drives all of that. And that's the bit that's hard at the moment. There's just too much of it. And it's, you know, the risk is, is, is very high. So I kind of, um, you know the risk for for everyone across the land not just me or my practice it's everywhere so i think like you although on a much shorter scale the sabbatical won't be for you know a year or anything like that it might be a couple of months or something but i just need to put a hold on that mm. whilst i you know um you know write the book and kind of you know make sure that the course kind of beds in because we've revamped it and rewritten it it's not what it was like four years ago it's a totally different sort of product for the want of a better word so yeah so that's sort of where I am and I think I've always been curious I, I very much am the doctor that wants to kind of get to the why of the why and kind of think well hang on you know it's not adequate to just patch this up and we, we do a lot of patching up don't we in, mm. in, in, in medicine because we're in such a rush and it doesn't pay in the long term it just it, it you know it's better to deal with something properly um, rather than just sticking plasters and so yeah that's a, a very quick summary of kind of my my career in some ways but I'm always you know I'm very dis problem is I'm, I'm quite distractible and I I love doing different things and so you know so I still do bits and bobs of you know voiceover work but usually for sort of thing you know things that that you wouldn't hear commercially but something that needs a medic that can say long yeah. medical words that you know but I don't need to be doing that I, I really don't need to be doing that because that's time isn't it and going back to that thing of you know yeah do I really be doing voiceovers no or, or moderating I do I do bits and bobs of that because yeah. Again, they need someone who's medical that can chair a meeting and, you know, you, you become Dimbleby for the sort of question time, but it's for a charity or something like that. So, you you know, and that's fun and is part of a portfolio career, but confusing for someone who's looking from the outside thinking, well, what, you know, what is he? Like, what does he actually do? Is he, is he, is he a sort of someone who wants to be on TV or is mm. he, what, you know, that sort of stuff. And, you know, I, I've, I don't care anymore. I sort of just do what I do. And if people you're, are you're really just from chatting to you, you're really past that um, desire. Uh, if you ever had a desire to be on TV, I'm not too sure. Maybe, you, maybe it was just, you know, that, that experience that you wanted at that time and it served you well, for sure. It's given you those suite of um, uh, experiences and connections and all the rest of it. But a large chunk of your time has mm. 
just been not just but it's just been you know in clinic seeing mm. patients day after mm. day thousands of thousands of patients every single year you know just mm. getting doing the work and that's why yeah. i'm really excited about the book first of all i didn't realize mm. we could talk about the book so i'm glad we can talk a bit about, about the book um yeah. the podcast and that's why i think mm. the podcast comes across so well which you'll which mm. you'll hear um but then also um yeah i, I was going to come back to this actually but maybe I'll, I'll, I'll ask you it now why why is it that certain people don't like lifestyle medicine because it seems pretty inoffensive to me mm. but and maybe that's yeah. because i have that experience of doing lifestyle medicine whenever i see patients even when i'm in a and e frankly I'm, I'm practicing lifestyle medicine a lot of what we do in a and e is about actually about preventative medicine mm. um it's not just about broken bones and lacerations and heart attacks and stuff there's actually a, yeah. a lot of you know uh, preventative care that we do so what wh why do you why do you think that is yeah but, well firstly there's not many like you i don't i, I think because when you're in an a and e environment and, and and doctors that where lifestyle medicine or whatever you want to call it isn't on their radar um it doesn't exist. It's a bit like any medic who's answering a multiple choice question. If you haven't heard of one of the options, it's got to be false. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. And so it's sort of a null. Yeah, it's like it almost like doesn't come into the arena for some people. And so when they hear about it and then they they kind of look at that space and a, a number of reasons, it lends itself to people who are sort of influencers and are very much out there and if you're sort of a doctor who isn't into that although increasingly most people have some sort of social media presence these days then you'll you'll become irritated by it and you'll make antibodies to it and you'll sort of think wait a second you know you know this is this is obvious we all know that we're meant to be doing this and that you know and they they kind of they kind of minimize it but that that's one reason i think the other is people think it's not evidence-based um and people who are sort of whose brand is very much evidence-based medicine kind of you know th they tend to be quite vocal about it because they you know for example i'll, I'll give you an, an example I, I, so i've been reading a paper the last paper that made me sort of prick up was how influenza in infection can increase your likelihood of developing Parkinson's disease. So it was in JAMA, the, the, which is that the American equivalent mm. of the BMJ, last month at the end of October. And I've known just, just through other reading for years that other types of infections can pre increase your predisposition to Parkinson's, like H. pylori and hepatitis C, for example. That's just because I'm interested. I'm not sort of trying to say, I, oh, oh, I can fix that. And, you know, um, but, the, but the point is, you know, we're all a evidence bases themselves need looking at again because a lot of the evidence bases that we look at are not valid because they deal with a particular population or they exclude certain you know criteria and they they often look at one thing when there are several things going on, um, and you know the office office for national statistics for example released something about. COVID infection in the unvaccinated and someone pointed out to them hang on a minute you're looking at a, a time when actually most people were unvaccinated mm -hmm. can we have sort of updated figures so it's very easy to pick holes in 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 studies anyway and 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 I think the other thing is that it it, it it's a burgeoning sort of specialty and I think other people who are naysayers think that 
everyone sort of jumped on this bandwagon because it's fashionable and it's it's a little bit more because it's softer than say well it's definitely softer than cardiothoracic surgery or or you know um i don't know um neurosurgery or something like that where there's something very defined it um it becomes easier to um get yourself associated with that and set yourself up as some sort of practitioner you know what i mean yeah, whereas you yeah, i yeah. couldn't i could you know i could never sort of go well i'm, I'm a brain surgeon because actually i'm not and i'd need you know many many years of, of training whereas i think it's such a broad church and it, and it incorporates um you know specialist non-clinicians like health coaches for example yeah. who who have a very specific set of skills but again falls on deaf ears unless you really know what they do and unless you appreciate that behavior change is the key to kind of delivering lifestyle medicine and and i you know we, we were talking at the beginning about um you know well-being and what makes well-being and again a word that triggers a lot of people mm. and um and my next sort of pod episode is about that in fact it was triggered by a friend of mine who was at knitting sawney who and she was saying, look, you know, we, we, we worry about well-being now and how to fit it in at work because it's such an important thing. And I, it's almost like well-being sort of. And I thought that's a really good, you know, and, and you know, lifestyle medicine that, that people make assumptions about being lifestyle choices and food and movement actually is a, quite a small part of overall well-being. You know, and if you, you know, if you're in a really toxic environment or in a, in a working or living in a culture that is, um causing you a lot of stress and in a kind of um you know kind of you know a feeling of a feeling of you know either sadness or, or continuous stress it doesn't really matter if you have the healthiest diet in the world you're not going to have decent well-being mm. and so the, so and, and these are the sort of nuances these are not things that you that are in medical textbooks but that, but there is a world of research on them that's out there so another piece another reason for attacking it i think is fear because you know, it's like, oh, hang on, maybe they are, maybe there is something in this, and I've just been too quick to sort of poo-poo it. Yeah. Um, or they just don't know how to apply it. And, and and that's where our course comes in, because as you know, as somebody came to the very first one and it's gone through lots of iterations, it's all about how you do it, how you very quickly gather that information in an elegant sort of way and give them an intervention. I mean, there are loads of organisations that do this kind of course, but you know, I'm, I'm slightly sick of going to these, going to places where someone's standing on stage and telling mm. me about the benefits of know, We know, we know, we yeah, know, yeah. I know yeah. that, I know that. What about the person in front of you? Yeah. How are you going to get them to do any of that, you know, when they haven't even got a bed? How can mm. they improve their sleep? You know, it's, that's what it's about. And there's no magic answer, but I think, you know, it, that's that's what I'm interested in is sort of, they're not so much health hacks, but it's more about sort of maximising things with the greatest ease. You know, like the Bill Gates lazy guy thing, that's me. He gives the most complex tasks to his laziest employee because you'll find the most elegant way of sorting it out. And, and that's how I kind of operate, probably because I'm a reluctant entrant into medicine in the first place and now that i'm in it and i'm i've kind of been doing it for a while i kind of sort of you know see i think i sort of see what's coming and what we need to kind of do and i'll, I'll try and do that with my patients as much as i can i think the thing i'm jealous with jealous of with you and your you know tech idea is 
scaling it's really difficult and so the book seems to be a decent the podcast and the book mm. seem to be my only sort of because I'm, I'm never going to you know write an app or anything like that so um it's just you know it's the only way i can kind of you know message to to the world and th- you know thanks to you know someone like yourself you know people will, will, will hear about it hopefully the appearance of lifestyle medicine being easy and also the um the sort of pattern of what we see with lifestyle medicine conferences where somebody goes up on stage and and do their sleep thing you need to tell your patients do this this and this and eat this kind of food and macros and all the rest of it Mm. and it can get a bit annoying because as as someone who's Mm. on the front line Mm. day in day out you know just how bloody hard that can be and and i think the other thing going back to what we were talking about with Mm. regard to why people kind of um turn their nose up at uh, lifestyle medicine it's because it's seen as something that's quite easy to do and obvious, right? So, you know, a junior doctor can call themselves a lifestyle medic after doing one mm. course or a diploma or whatever you want to do um, and start advising them patients to sleep more or eat better or whatever. And uh, hey, presto, you're a lifestyle medic. Whereas using your analogy, if you're a brain surgeon, you, you're going to be training for 11, 12, 13 years plus. In fact, you'll never stop training because there's always a subspecialty that you have to do. And I think actually we need to reframe the way people mm. look at lifestyle medicine because there is a, a beauty in the subtlety of practicing lifestyle medicine. And that is only what you can achieve through putting in the hours and seeing as many people as you can and understanding and empathizing with people's varied situations. Because like you just said, there's no point telling someone to sleep better when they might not even have a bed. And you know they're worried about being evicted or there is a toxic environment at home um, to, to varying degrees. And it's not necessarily like a, a physically toxic environment. It can be a mentally toxic environment, which can be just as taxing. So there is this subtlety in, in what you practice that I don't think is reflected accurately in a very nicely curated social media post. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, completely. And I think I think um, absolutely right. Um, what what's really interesting is um, health coaches who are not clinical and and haven't sort of had years of, for want of a better phrase, thinking like a doctor. Mm. You know, in terms of that generating a hypothesis and trying to match the evidence with guidelines and and, and the reality in general practice is everything is un, undifferentiated and, and really nebulous you, it's very hard to apply guidelines unless someone's had a heart attack and you want to know what dose of statin they, that, that they need to go on or, or that sort of stuff you know with established disease and, and entities it's different but when you've got someone who's not feeling well or functioning well and you've already tried everything and they've been round the houses to specialists and you know back to you three or four times a different approach is what's needed to move them on from where they are you know um i don't i mean i'm sure you remember yeah. but we used to disparagingly call yeah. patients heart mm. sync patients it was something we were taught in our vts and i I've, i'm not sure how that would sit nowadays i don't even know whether i, I can even mention the word because it's just not appropriate and and it was a way of um categorizing effectively patients that doctors found difficult you know and i i forget the sort of 
subcategories now, but there's one that's called the, the entitled demander, and then one's called the manipulative help projector. And but actually, they were they were very much sort of doctor psychology sort of constructs. But really, you know, if you and, and at the time we were told, well, actually, all, what you need to do with these patients is just listen to them, and that sort of hand you know manages them. There's some truth to that because if you you know if if a patient sort of gets the impression you don't want to really help them you might as well forget it you know your relationship's just not gonna come to anything but something bad um but th there is always a way of moving someone from zero to one that you know however difficult and health coaches i mean our health coach gets results with people that i could only dream of and that's because a she's got more time but b she really understands behavior change and you know what makes people tick you know how people work not in the physiological anatomical sense like reading textbooks like snell and all that stuff that we have to do at med school it's a it's a totally different thing and in a way analogous to what i sometimes what the conversations i have with medical students that come through from ucl or, or imperial they i can see when they're ringing a patient or when they're seeing someone they've got this medical knowledge they're trying to sort of you know grapple with and trying to work things out mm. but they're also trying to speak patients mm. language without you know and actually we just do it without thinking now don't we because we've done it for so many years but it but it becomes this unconscious competence thing where you're making all those calculations and thinking what could this be but you're still speaking as if you're just having a normal chat and um it's a bit like that you know and that's why the the hard some of the hardcore think that this stuff is all soft and kind of fluffy it's actually not you know some of those interventions if you measure them as we know they the outcomes are, are incredible so i mean it it's um but i I've, I've got past that point of caring i just don't care anymore you know and, and i think you know that, that 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 sort of you know that toxicity and that kind of oh you know this is this is nonsense that's nonsense i'm better than you i know more you know i don't care you know i'm just going to do what i do because I, I i kind of it sounds so awful to the you know especially to someone who um might be you know very hooked on evidence but you know we know it works because because there is evidence behind it so why not just go with it you know um and the other thing is it's you know it, unlike neurosurgery which is very highly specialized and and very very risky lifestyle medicine generally if it's if it's contained is low risk you know you're not gonna um hopefully no one's going to be advising anything dangerous and i think that's that's another worry mm. that mm. you know people who don't know much about it kind of worry about so um but it's you know it it, it is the the you know part and parcel of the way the future of health is has got to go um we live we live in a toxic world unfortunately and unless, you know, that direction is all about pharmaceuticals and looking for, you know, ways of, of, of you know, biological ways, if you like, from a chemistry lab, you know, uh, of managing it. Um, and this direction is what can we do ourselves? And, and I think that's the sort of mm, the simplistic yeah. way to, to look at it. There's a place for both. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not against drugs at all, but it's... Um, this stuff is more important than a lot of people think i think i want to ask you about um saving lives in slow motion um the podcast is great and you know we're, we're going to listen to an episode mm -hmm. um that i want to feature on this um is the book going to be called the same uh name is that 
Is that what we're going no, for? No, I, I, well, I can't give away the book title, I don't think, oh, okay, at the moment. Fine. But, but, but <laughs> the, the short answer is probably not. I, I'd love it to be. Um, and my original sort of book pitch was that. And you, you know more than anyone how publishers kind of work and think. And, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got a great publisher, but um, it wasn't quite... I think the feeling was, oh, that's a brilliant idea, brilliant concept, but it's more like a second book rather than a first book. Okay. Um, they know what they're doing with that sort of stuff. I think I think the book I am writing at the moment, so there's definitely a book in Saving Lives and Slow Motion, and actually mm. the, you know, kind of what you hear on each episode of the podcast is almost like a, a chapter in itself, you know. Yeah. So that that's definitely parked for, at some point. The, the, the book I'm writing is much more a sort of a, a manual of sorts. So I think the world, the public publishers, they like plans, they like manuals, they like handbooks, they like something that is easy and instructional for the reader. It, it sits slightly uncomfortably with me because I don't like telling people what to do. That's not mm. what I'm about. And the book isn't like that. It's not preachy in any way. But it lays out a lot of basic things, some of which do come up on my podcast. So there's a whole section on behaviours and understanding mm. yourself. Because if you don't, if you can't do that, there's no point in, in reading on. I think it'd be interesting to see who buys it, because I think men who tend to buy that sort of thing are always looking, certainly talking to my friends, they're looking for the health hacks. You know, what can I, you know, I'll just tell me what to just to do it's like it doesn't make it doesn't really work like that it's mm. just, you know one or two things do like like for example um around town there's a bit of a joke any of my patients who bump into each other it's like oh yeah i met mrs x and morrison's or whatever and you know she said since you told her to take vitamin d in winter she, you know she's not not felt unwell at all you know and all this sort of stuff but that's just <laughs> that's basic boring stuff that we all know about vitamin d supplementation yeah. but there's a there's sort of and i've sort of thought well how can i you know by keeping it individualized how can i sort of put all of this into one book so one whole section is on the symptom web which is as you know we teach on the course yeah. and that's you know very much part of the ip of the book and understanding your own symptoms you know um so i think it will have a lot of value and i think it's a book that makes sense um and yeah, I, I, you know, I'm nervous about saying too much more about it, but I'm really, no, I'm really no, excited. Course, yeah. You know, it's uh, yeah, yeah. I think it will be. I mean, you, you've probably seen snippets for it. You know, I'm sure I've sent you the, the first, the opening and stuff like that. So yeah, but it's it, it needs writing, and the the deadline is not that far away. Now it seems yeah, ages yeah. away, doesn't it? You know, I mean, you've done it many times with you your push books, it back so. and back. You're like, oh, I'll get written, I'll get written, and then like two weekends before, you're like, oh my god, <laughs> I've got to do ten thousand words a day or something. So it's yeah, it's a, it's a lot of work. But closer to the time, um, it, we would have to chat about it in a little more detail uh, when it comes out because uh, I, I I've seen the snippets of it and I know it's going to be a fantastic a book and uh, I think a lot of people are going to get it, not just a few people. I think a lot of people are going to get it, and it ties in quite nicely with what you teach on PLM now as well. Yeah, and you you mentioned earlier, sorry, that you've revamped it. So it's very different to what I experienced um four years ago, I think it now it was, which yeah. is I guess what some people might see as a more traditional approach to teaching a mm. subject matter to medics. You know, mm. anyone who's a medic listening to this will understand what that means. It's where you go to a conference, someone goes on stage, you go through a few case histories, you might see a um 
mm. some interaction of how that works. Uh, how how have you moved the, the course along? Yeah, so we we it's really interesting because Rongan and I we kind of we we loved that that first course the first sort of iteration of it, but we realised that there were bits missing from it. So what was missing? was and actually this is from feedback from people who've come who who invariably love the course but mm. they'll go oh there's, you need a bit more about behavior change in there because there really isn't any and one of the things that we realized was that you know if you're a, if you're a good doctor so someone like yourself doesn't really have to work very hard to probably convince patients to try something because you're personable you're compassionate you're not patronizing you know and they realize that actually you know do you know what i'm going to give this a go so so the behavior change sort of comes by the you know by default of charisma if you like because you just sort of you know it's like well I don't, i've never really had to sort of think about changing the patient's behavior because they just they just do it you know or or they try and they don't it doesn't work out and but but actually that's just luck and, and a bit of fluke and what you do need certain tools to you know like motivational interviewing or you know um kind of assessment scales to see how activated a patient is so there's a lot more of that and that that part of the course has been provided for us by practice unbound who we partnered with who's an amazing organization down in brighton um and and actually which yes yeah, close to home to me because obviously that's my hometown where i grew up mm -hmm. and i'm not going to have many links there anymore apart from apart from them so and they're amazing they 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 um kind of are a you know they, they do a lot of work with primary care and have a lot of products that help make the lives for you know lives of primary care teams easier the other thing that they do which is really exciting for anyone in the nhs that buys the course is that you can now track data through nhs clinical systems like emis mm. so they're doing all of that work and that's really exciting where you have yeah. a data dashboard to prove that the interventions work i think that's the bit that's been historically missing and that's the bit where people are critical going well you know how do you know it's worked just because he says he feels better yeah. um so to track that would be great so so i'm really excited and like i said earlier it's about alignment for me um everything chimes and everything is sort of you know my clinical work the book the course and the podcast are all you know in the same you know, it's, it's very it's very stressful isn't it if you're someone who um everything you do is slightly different it's like oh you know I, i'm sure you know people like this where it's like oh they've got this business where they rent out cars but then they're also a lawyer and then they're also <laughs> they run this kids football school it's like hang on a minute what you know they take that they may have a common sort of purpose behind each one but actually then they're, they're not the same thing and i think yeah. there's a huge amount of overlap in all these which makes life much easier because you're using it's, it's really taxing we know the evidence on um, multitasking is it's just really bad for us isn't it in terms of stress and actually this doesn't feel like i'm having to multitask as much because the subject matter in all three of these four of these areas of my life is pretty much the same do you know what i mean i'm sure you you've experienced this yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, like, it's so lovely to hear you talk about that alignment there. Um, and uh, it certainly resonates with me as well, because, you know, someone doing um, books and podcasts and stuff, when, when they're all sort of in the same vein, it kind of 
is it easier for me to compartmentalize instead of having multiple different uh, areas of, of, I don't know, business or, you know, d- different sort of hobbies. I, I find that quite hard myself. And, I, you know, you're right about the evidence around multitasking and how that can create a strain. And some people just mm. thrive and, and I'm just not one of those people. But I'm, I'm really interested in the, in the inbound stuff and how that connects and is integrated with the system so you can track data because mm. one of the, my bugbears with, with the stuff that I do is I know the minority of people that I see in uh, A&E will ever pick up my book, will ever listen to a podcast for an hour or two on whatever a health topic it might be. And yeah. to really get to changing people's lives at scale, you have to upskill all other medical professionals such that we're all singing from the same hymn. And we have this culture around you know, holistic medicine, preventive medicine, whatever you want to call it, as just part of medicine. Mm. And they're also the, um, uh, the, the products and the interventions made available to everyone from common systems like EMIS, like System One and all the other uh, uh, clinical tools that we have in primary care. So that that is fantastic. That is awesome. And I, I can't wait to see that scale. I mean, you, that is pretty much like that, that, that's uh, you're in the tech industry, buddy. You're like, <laughs> yeah, well, it's yeah, I, I kind of, I mean, it's not, it's not appy in a way. It's for, it's basically what frontline, you know, yeah. uh, primary care teams do, and it's just capturing what they do and trying. And, and I mean, it doesn't have to be complicated because we already do a bit of this with our clinical systems for, you know, weight, blood pressure, for example, mm. or mood. But but this is it's a bit more than that. There's there are more, and it's taken. You know, the, the team have worked so hard over the last six months to to find things that are validated because you mm. can't just you can't just have a drop. Because when I first started doing the templates i kept <laughs> one of the one of my drop downs was oh yeah feels better feels worse feels the same and and, and the data kings were, were kind of going no no, no that's just that's not how that's no good. <laughs> i'm like i'm like what why not and, and i get i get it it wasn't quite that bad but but there are certain there are limitations with codes for example you're gathering the information the template that i've sort of devised at the moment it's so on, on, on EMIS, for example, which is, you know, for people who don't know, is just one type of software system that GPs used, you know, to type notes. When you're coding diet, it's just diet good, diet average or diet poor. But mm. there's only three codes for it. So and I wanted something with 60, you know, it was it's very complicated. It got very sort of messy. And that's why Practice Unbound, that's what they do. That's one of the streams of their sort of talents and their business. And so I thought, hey, I'm never going to be able to do this. I, I, I you know because of time and other things so yeah it's really exciting i'm, I'm re- i cannot wait for it to kind of hard launch we haven't quite got there yet but we're, it's it's good stuff yeah i can't yeah. wait for oh it you must you must send it over to us to to have a look i'd love to to see yeah of course yeah, yeah absolutely well. and, um, yeah, yeah. yeah no i i'm super excited about that you know I, actually i wanted to ask you um so the, the other night when we were at Nissan Sawney, mm. um the first half mm. i remember listening to the first time i'm like He's played all the bangers. He's literally played all the amazing tracks. Like, how is the second half gonna? Yeah, I thought this? that. And the second half was incredible. Some of the music I've ne- I haven't heard before because they're in brand new tracks. But I was blown away, blown yeah. away. 
Yeah, and it's, I think the thing with him is that it's the story that goes behind each track, and he's that's the thing that makes it. And you th- and you can sort of feel the pain and the kind of, you know what I mean, the emotion. And then um, and then everyone obviously knew he hadn't done Nadia until the end. You know, the sort of his kind of yeah. opus in a way. That track is just so great, isn't it? But I think I think that the other thing with with Nitin Thorny is sometimes you listen to his 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 he's a bit of a generalist isn't he like his mm. sometimes some of his music sounds like a bond theme yeah and then so, some of it sounds like music my mum might have listened to when she was growing yeah. up it's it's really diff but he it's but all of it is at that level of you know the quality and the the, the actual musicality is amazing and, yeah. he, and he sort of mastered lots of instruments like his flamenco guitar and, and his piano i mean he's just yeah and he and he curates it so well it's sort of he he picks you know, he handpicks his sort of band, doesn't he? Is uh, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a, such a great, yeah. I love, I, I do love it. But it's it's such a, he's such a true maestro. And I remember because I mean, I mean, I'm uh, 36. I, I, I'm not going to ask you your age on on on, on the podcast, right? But but you're a few years older than me. And I think 48, you, mate. 48. 48. Okay, 49. <laughs> <laughs> so so certainly when I was growing up and. Um, you know, be, being Indian, second generation, going to a predominantly uh, Caucasian school and, you know, not really having too many links to my heritage. I remember it kind of clicked when I listened to Nitin Sawney because he was someone who really blended and actually gave a bit of identity to people who might have that sort of mixed thinking about where they're from and, and you know, yeah. lacking those links to their, their cultural heritage. And I remember listening to like, you know, his flamenco guitar and then like mm. uh, Katak on top of it and the uh, the Indian um, sort of uh, vocals. And then, mm. you know, it's intertwined with English. And it's like, this is, this is us. This is, yeah. I, I now have some sort of identity. This really appeals to me. And, and it's unique because it wouldn't immediately appeal to someone who's, you know, English uh, versus someone who grew up in India. This is, yeah. it, it's really reflective of that. And that, yeah, that's why it's really resonated with me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I remember the first time I felt that actually it wasn't this in Sony, actually, initially, it was when I was a medical student. So it would have been mid 1990s. And we used to go to the Blue Note in Hackney. Mm. And there was a club night called Anoka. So Bjork would always rock up there. And, Talvin Singh would be there and yes. Talvin Singh got me really into that whole you know that world and yeah and I remember thinking yeah this this just I can feel it you know it's just it was it's it's amazing I totally with you um, I think totally. you're right it's um yeah it's, it's a very unique sort of yeah it just it just yeah we're it's almost made for us but I think I think any good music kind of talks to people like that you know if you ask somebody who listens to Dire Straits they'd say oh no no that, that's that album's written for me because that you know yeah. what I mean but it, it really it really <laughs> but I think I think you're right yeah yeah absolutely yeah. Talvin Singh uh inspired me to start the tabla actually when I was like 14 or 15 I remember trying to learn it and I, I've still got some rhythm but um his track uh Butterfly is oh, yeah. up there one of my favorite favorite tracks of all time amazing i just yeah yeah it's uh, i'm gonna have to play a bit of the music to for, <laughs> for the intro to this podcast actually because otherwise no one will understand what we're talking about yeah that'd be, the, that'd be awesome yeah, yeah definitely oh listen mate thank you so much for having thank me you. i really appreciate it no, i appreciate it man a pleasure as always and I, I really i love your work honestly and um as i say that you're uh, yeah, your, your uh, Mediterranean bean recipe or whichever <laughs> one it is in that book that comes out now and again. 
the pineapple <laughs> salad that's it i love that <laughs> great awesome. great that's a good one but listen Thanks, take mate. care mate take care cheers have a good day see you later bye now bye Thank you so much for listening to today's episode that is slightly different. We've had another podcast within my podcast. We've talked to Ian, we've caught up with him. Um, There's lots of hopefully nice tidbits of information that you can gather, but also the links to everything that we talked about, including the music and the podcast that he's recently started. They're all on the show notes at thedoctorskitchen.com. And when you're there, you can sign up for the newsletter, which is all about eating, listening and watching something that is uplifting and helping you live a healthier, happier life. I really hope you enjoy that. Sign up there and I will see you here next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 